Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Let's worship the Lord and invite him here this morning to have his way as we sing this prayer to him this morning to do what you want to.
succeeded. positivity or wishful thinking. But hope is something different. It's greater, it's better, and it's more. Hope is choosing to wait for God to bring his goodness into our lives. It's remembering his faithfulness in our past and trusting his plans for our future. Hope rises when we encounter the light that shatters the darkness and when the long-awaited Messiah makes his home with us. It's an invitation for every person, and it's here now, because Jesus is here now. This is hope. Welcome to Christmas. Good morning, and welcome to Peckway Church as well. We are kicking off a new sermon series, and so I'm so glad that you're here as we begin that today, this Advent season, and we're going to be talking about the promise that our Savior has come. And over these next several weeks, we're going to be talking about those things that we think of for Christmas. We talk about peace, we talk about joy, we talk about love, and those are the things that we're going to be doing over these next several weeks together as we lead up to Christmas Eve. And so I hope that you'll be uh, planning to be here as we do that, as we lead up to Christmas Eve, that you'll be planning to invite others to come because we're gonna we're gonna kind of sum up that story. We're gonna see uh, you know the traditional story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, but. What were they feeling? What were they thinking on that night when Jesus came? How did they prepare when the angel spoke to them? So we're going to see these things, but today we're going to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus. And so uh, have your message notes uh, ready here in person. You can find those in your bulletin online. You'll find those uh, available on the, the website there or uh, in the online chat room. You'll see those in just a moment. But also, I want to say I, I, that hopefully you had a, a great Thanksgiving, a great time with your your family. And, uh, and so I'm glad that we could gather in this place together today. Inside of your bulletin is a great connection card. Go ahead and take that card out. You can fill it out now, anytime during the service today. Also, there's going to be uh, in the chat room there, there's going to be a, a link that you can fill out that card digitally. For those here in person, you can drop that card on the way out this morning as you exit online. Just simply click that submit button and it'll come right to us. Also, if you're a first time guest, you can just take out your cell phone and text the word hello to 717 725679. A really quick and easy way is by doing that. Just make sure you respond to those prompts, but I'll get a text message right away. We'll get uh, connected easily that way. And if you have any, any concerns or if you have any questions or prayer requests, you can always do that with your cell phone as well. And as those who are regular attenders and members, you can also, you're connected that way with us as well. But just a great and easy way that we can connect. And so that's very important for us because we want to be with you in this journey that we're going on together of learning how to be brothers and sisters in Christ or just on this experience of who is Jesus. Maybe you don't know who he, who he is and we want to be um, here for you as you have those questions. And so please take a moment to do that this morning uh, during our service today. Well, I'm going to uh, also invite you to stand once again as we continue our worship. You know, uh, as we talk about raising a hallelujah today, our circumstances sometimes can get us down, but praise is a weapon. And so let's raise a hallelujah as we worship. I raise a hallelujah. 
hearts of my enemies I raise a hallelujah Louder than the unbelief I raise a ever be afraid to clap and give the Lord a hand. You're not clapping for us. We are clapping together as brothers and sisters here this morning, worshiping 
him. And he deserves all the praise and glory, whether that's a shout or a clap or singing out loud, whatever it is. Would you shame the devil this morning and lift your voice because we have a living hope. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, Christ, my living Lord. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from
You can be seated. I pray that he's your living hope today, that you're not wishing for something, that you're not hoping in something that's based on earthly things, but it's based on Jesus. And uh, we sang this song last Christmas, so I wanted you to have a seat so you'd feel comfortable this morning as we sing it. If you remember, please join in with us as we celebrate Jesus, our living hope today. So let's continue worshiping.
Father, we thank you for the victory that we have in your name, Jesus. The mighty name of Jesus, as we've declared today, God, that you are our living hope. Lord, that you rescued us, that you saved us, that you had a plan from the very beginning, God. That Jesus, you would sacrifice your life for us. And that you would come to earth as Emmanuel, God with us. Today, would you fill us with your hope, Jesus, as we hear your eternal words, and we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to join with Scott in saying good morning and welcome to this beginning of the Advent season, the beginning of our journey toward Christmas. And I hope you caught the words of that song. Because it really is profound if you think about it. Because one of the mistakes, and Scott alluded to it, one of the mistakes we make as people, as our culture, is believe that hope, we have hope in a thing. Or we even have hope, you know, in, in a philosophy. Or perhaps hope for us as Christians. Some of us said we our hope is in the truths of the Bible. But the truth is, scripturally, our hope is in a person. And as that song said, a person has a name. That person's name is Jesus. So let's just jump into the message this morning. I want to encourage you to take out your message notes. But as you do, let me just kind of ask you to do with this with me mentally. If I were to ask you to make a list of the events related to the Christmas story as it appears in the Bible, what would you say? What would you identify as those key events? Let me just throw some out for you. I'm sure you could think of others, but certainly we would list the angel appearing to a virgin. And then that same angel appearing, or at least we think it's the same angel, appearing to her fiancé. We would certainly list the fact or the event of a census that led that same young couple to the town of Bethlehem. We would probably talk about the events of some shepherds in the field and then visiting a manger. We would probably talk about Herod. We talk about some wise men, a visit to, the, to Jerusalem temple and to Jerusalem's palace, rather. And if I then ask you to list the people who were central to the biblical story of the, the Christmas, what would you name? Probably you would come up with names like Mary and Joseph, Probably Gabriel, the angel, that's who first appeared to Mary. You probably think of an innkeeper, Herod, three wise men, you know, uh, uh, this, this gathering, this unnamed number of shepherds. And folks, all of those things would be true. But what would you think if I suggest to you that with all of those things, both the events and the people, some key events and some key people were left out? That in fact, I would suggest to you that our list is incomplete. Now, if you're like me, your mind's already running, going, who do we leave out? Who do we not mention? And if you're like me, your mind, and again, it's part of our culture, maybe not so much like me, your mind's going back through the movies, right? It's going through the, the Sunday school storybooks. It's going through the Christmas cards. You go, who do we miss? What did we miss? But let me suggest to you this way, and I'm, I'm egging you on, and I'm hopefully inciting you to do a little thinking, but... I want to suggest to you that what is missed in that list of events and list of people is recorded for us on the last day of Christmas. The last day, at least as Luke records it, to the Christmas story. And there's some key people and key events that Luke gives us in his account of the full Christmas story that I want to tell you is over, often overlooked. Because as your mind went through, it, you won't think about it in the story. That is, in the story book. You won't think about the persons or the events if you simply go to the movies you've seen, animated or live action. And you won't even think about it if you think about the Christmas cards that you have sitting ready to send out or maybe you've received over the years. 
But here's the thing. The people and events are in the gospel. And they're in the gospel because they're important. They're important because they teach us the true meaning of Christmas, the true significance of Christmas, or as we just got done singing, the true hope of Christmas. So here's my question. Don't shout it out. Some of you are going to give yourself a gold star. Do you know what I'm referring to, the events, and to whom I'm referring to? Folks, I, I want us to look at them today. I hope the answer to that question is either you know them or know now, Jerry, I'm interested in knowing them. Because the truth is, that's where we're going to spend the next couple of weeks. As we lead up to Christmas, we're going to spend some time looking at these individuals, looking at what they could teach us about the hope and the meaning of Christmas. So let's just jump into it. If you haven't taken your message notes out already, please do that. And turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. The Gospel of Luke, the second chapter. And I'm going to read you the very end, the, the conclusion of you know, Luke chapter 2. It's the first part of it we're all familiar with. Angels and shepherds and mangers and trips to Bethlehem and no room in the end. But I'm going to read you, if you will, the rest of the story. Really, the rest of the story is the last scenes of the, of the Christmas story. So let's just begin. It says, On the eighth day, Luke writes, When it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is it written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons." Now again, let me speculate what some of you are thinking, going, hey, Jerry, I figured out why no one preaches this, why it's not in the movies, it's not in the storybooks, and it's not on any of the Christmas cards, because it's boring. If that's what you're thinking, let me help you. Let me tell you why perhaps you think it's boring. It's because of the fact that you and I are living 2,000 years removed and 5,800 miles away from the original setting of the story. And so we don't understand the historical context. We don't understand what the first readers of Luke's Gospels understood. And so let me see if I can, for the next few minutes, see if I can help us bridge that historical gap. And I'm going to do it fairly quickly, so if you do take notes, hang on and get your pens out and get ready. Let's, let's just begin. And in the first part of Luke chapter 2, this isn't in our text, but in the very beginning of the timeline, and that's really what I want to give you, kind of the sequence or events, and the very first step in the very first piece in that timeline, obviously, is the birth of Jesus. And that's the manger scene. We all know that. We've, some of us have been a part of those kind of nativia scenes at church, or maybe if you're my age, in school. But that's the first scene, the scene we're most familiar with. But Luke then picks up the rest of his narrative. This is really where he begins in verse 21. And he says, on the eighth day... Jesus was circumcised, and that was according to law. So the second event that Luke is giving us here is the circumcision of Jesus, which really identified him as a young male as part of that covenant community, part of God's chosen people. And in that same time, as part of that same tradition, Jesus, the third step or piece in that timeline is Jesus was formally named. And as I just said, you guessed it, he was named Jesus, and Luke tells us why. Because if you know the gospel, Luke, Luke tells us, but even if you know, don't read that, you know the gospel, then you know at the very beginning, before Jesus was even conceived, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, told her she was blessed of the Lord, and she would give birth to a son, and he, she was to name him Jesus. 
And then shortly after that, the angel appeared to Joseph and, and told him the same thing, that this baby that was conceived by the Holy Spirit was to be named Jesus. Now here's what you may or may not know. The name Jesus was given strategically, but it wasn't because it was popular, or, or really it was popular. It wasn't because it was novel. It, it, really, naming Jesus in that day was like naming someone Robert or Tom or Jim today. It was a very common name. But the reason it was given by the angel was because it was strategic. It was important because here's what the name literally means. The Lord saves. That's the meaning of Jesus. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, then you know it's just a derivative variation of the name Joshua. And the reality is that name was given by the angel because it already, in the giving of the name, signified and symbolized the significance of the birth of this child that he was to be the Lord's Savior. And that reality leads on to three other things that really kind of mash together here. It really is, they're mashed together because Luke just knew his readers already knew this, but we don't, so let me explain it to you. He refers, in that passage, kind of put together, to three other Jewish religious ceremonies. Three things that required by the law. And here's the first thing. He talks about the time of purification. And it was called the time of purification. That's the next step. It was called the time of purification because in Jewish law, in, in the Jewish religion, childbirth made a woman ceremonially unclean. Now, don't hear ethically or morally unclean. That's not what I was saying. It was saying ceremonially unclean. And so after the birth of a son, 40 days after the birth, or 66 days if it was the birth of a daughter, the mother was to go to the temple, present herself and an offering for not only purification, but an offering for sin. And after that was completed, the priests would prescribe her, declare her ceremonially clean once again. Now, here's what you may or may not know. And Luke, again, is assuming that we know this, but we maybe don't if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. He said, according to the law, what was prescribed was actually a pair of doves and two young pigeons. And that is correct. But the actual, the, the required thing was to be a lamb and a dove or a pigeon. He says, so where did Luke get that? He said, the, the law also stipulated that a family was too poor to purchase or provide a lamb, that two birds could be substituted. So what Luke's saying here, and what his readers would immediately recognize, is Luke is declaring that Jesus, his parents, his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, were among the poorest of the poor. That's what that's communicating that they couldn't afford to prescribe the expected sacrifice, and so they had to kind of take advantage of this provision of the law for those who were the most poor and, and if you will, destitute among the people of Israel. But, but that's not all. Luke goes on, and he also talks about in that context, the next thing he talks about is they say that Jesus was, they presented Jesus at the temple. And the reason for that, again, was Old Testament law, because if you remember the story of the Exodus, then you remember after the 10th plague, God, in, it actually in the Passover, that after the 10th, the, during the 10th plague, if you remember, the Egyptians' firstborn animals and sons all died. But God directed Mo Moses and the people to put blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, of, and, and God's angel would pass over them. And so that's what we know is the Passover. But because of that, God sparing them, he said every firstborn in Israel, whether human or animal, belonged to him. They were consecrated. They were holy to him. They were to be his. 
And that really led to the, to the other provision, the other ceremony that was going on here, and that was the, the presentation and rededication, rather, and redemption of Jesus of the firstborn to God. Because, in that, because of that same stipulation, the firstborn male animal and human belonged to God because of the Passover. God then said in, in Numbers to, to the Levites, He said, now every firstborn dedicated to me is yours. God said, they're mine, I'm giving them to yours. But every firstborn male, human, and every firstborn unclean animal needs to be redeemed. In other words, it needs to be bought back. And God stipulated a price, the redemption price. And so what's going on here, symbolically, in all of this, of presenting to Jesus was symbolically they were presenting Jesus into God's service to, for God to do with him whatever God wanted to do with him. Now, you say, why in the world did Luke give us all that detail? And Jerry, why are you taking the time to explain it to us? Because we need to understand that to understand what is next on the scene. See, Luke is sharing that to set up the introduction of a man named Simeon. And just let's go on and just look at what Luke says about this man, Simeon. He said, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I want you to underline that. We'll come back to it. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, there's the presentation, dedication, redemption of Jesus. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you have now dismissed your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel." Now, there's a lot there, and I just want to unpack it with you together. But let's begin with that phrase I asked you to underline, the consolation of Israel. And I want you to underline that. That's how the NIV translates it, because the truth is we don't talk about that and speak that way anymore. And yet saying that, I want to say to you, every one of us can appreciate the meaning that, of the way that's translated, because even today we talk about consoling someone in their grief, consoling someone in their loss. And when we're doing that, what are we doing? We're providing comfort. We're supplying hope. We're, we're, we're being a place in a person of encouragement to the one who is grieving, the one who's going through the loss. So in other words, what we need to understand here is that, that Simeon was waiting for the hope, the comfort, the promise of this Messiah that God had literally been promised, and we're going to see this in a second, literally from the time of the garden. God had been promising a Messiah, a Savior. And, and so he literally, he, Simeon, was waiting for this, for this hope, this comfort. And, and the good news is, and Luke tells us as well, we don't know how, but he tells us that the Holy Spirit had made known to Simeon that he would not die before he saw the promised one, the Messiah. In other words, he knew that it was going to happen in his lifetime. And so we're again, and Luke doesn't tell us how, but he, he makes it clear that the Holy Spirit led, prompted Simeon that day to go into the temple courts. Clearly the temple courts, because Mary was there. 
And so he goes in the temple courts, and seeing the baby Jesus, the Holy Spirit leads him to recognize him as the one, as the promised one, as the Messiah. And when he saw that, he understood, that is, Simeon understood that he was seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. He was seeing the consummation of God's salvation to his people. The very same consummation and promise, as I said, that God first shared in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall to Adam and Eve. If you're familiar with that text, you want to look it up, I'll paraphrase it for you. But God says, I will place his speaking to the servant, he says, I'm going to place enmity between the woman and you. And enmity between your, her offspring and your offspring, and he will, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, the, now, if you want to impress your friends, you're not going to impress them. They're just going to worry about you. But if you want to know the theological term for that, that's the proto-evangelium. It literally means the first proclamation of the gospel. God, even after, immediately after the fault, is saying there is hope. There's going to be salvation. This isn't the end of the story. And I want to, I share that because I want to take, if I can, the next five or ten minutes, maybe a little longer than that, and unpack for you. That whole salvation history from Genesis to the birth of Jesus, folks, because if we're going to appreciate Christmas for what it truly is, we're going to see and understand what Simeon saw and understood and got excited about, we have to see the flow of salvation history. We have to understand what led up to and made the birth of Jesus the pivotal event in human history. So much so that we're told by Luke that when it happened, heaven's angels broke out into song. That's how big a deal this is. This is how important this is. And we only are going to appreciate it if we understand the flow of salvation history. Only if we understood what led up to it and what made the birth such an important part of salvation history. So let's go at it because, folks, I really do believe to appreciate Christmas the way Simeon did, we have to see it from 30,000 feet. We have to back up beyond mangers and stables and innkeepers and see it in the scope of God's salvation history from God's perspective. So let's jump into it. If you know your Bible, and if you don't, you probably recognize it culturally anyhow, the Bible begins, in the beginning, God. Now we all know that. But part of what that's declaring to us is in the beginning, God existed. In God's pre-existent. In other words, God isn't a created being. God is the creator. God has pre-existed. The other thing we see very quickly and, and, and begins to unpack for us in the book of Genesis, in the creation story, is God existed, pre-existed in community, in relationship. You say, what are you talking about, Jerry? I'm talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Even in the creation story, we begin to see the signs, and, and because of our understanding and revelation of Jesus, we understand we're seeing the Trinity at work. And God existed in community. And God then created us in His image, which means God created us for a relationship. God created us for a community. And we just spent the last six weeks talking about that. And so we go on in the book of Genesis and read, God created us in his image and God created us in his image and he created Adam but quickly again if you know the story you know that God said and it is not good for man to be alone and so God created Eve and he created Eve so that she along with Adam can be in relationship with one another and they could be in relationship with God 
But again, fast forward a couple chapters, it didn't take long in human history till we did what God told us not to do. In other words, we sinned. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, the relationship with God and one another wasn't broken. That sounds like it was quote-unquote repairable, that it was just kind of fractured. No, it was shattered. And because of that, they sinned that the relationship with one another and with God was shattered. And folks, you need to understand it. That's what sin does. It shatters community. It shatters relationship. And as a result of that, their oneness with one another and with God was lost. You say, so what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal. As a result of that sin, as a result of what theologians call the fall, all kinds of relationally toxic stuff made its appearance on the human scene. Things like death, things like disease, things like murder, things like deceit, uh, of guilt, of blame. All those relationally toxic things came into existence because of Adam and Eve's sin. And yet, I would, and I would say to you, again, if you would know the story, read the story, you would step back and say, and God had every right at that moment to wash his hands of us. But God didn't. In fact, that's the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and I promise we'll move quicker now. But that's the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and you would think, okay, there was no chapter 12 because God was just done with us. But that's not what the Bible says. We go on to Genesis chapter 12, and what we find there is God calls a man named Abram. Abram means the father of one people. And he renamed Abram Abraham, which means the father of many people, because God not only wanted a relationship with Abram, but he wanted to use Abram to father an entire people who would serve as a beachhead on the human scene so that God could use them and work through them to reach all people. Thus the name, the father of many people or many nations. Yet here's the thing. Despite God's best efforts... Despite God literally adopting them, entering into what we know biblically as a covenant with them, a covenant that he started with this binding, you say, what's a covenant? Think of marriage. We talk about the marriage covenant, this deep, unbreakable bond. God entered a covenant beyond the fact that he did that. He sent prophets, he sent leaders, he, sent, he gave revelation, yet time and time again, they repeatedly chose to rebel, they being the Israelites. They repeatedly chose to engage in idolatry. They continually repeated to apostate, pull away from God, to reject God. And the story of the Old Testament is one of God's heart being broken by a people that he chose, he called, and he loved. Because time and time again, the people chose something other than what God had created them for and called them to be, and that is in relationship with Him. Now let me just slow down there long enough and hit pause, because when I say that, I want to make sure we appreciate what God's heart went through in all of this. Through these now centuries of human rebellion, rejection by the Israelites. And the best way I know to do that is share with you something that a man by the name of Philip Yancey wrote in one of his books. And I just want to paraphrase it for you. But he says, imagine, and I think you could do this as well, but he says, imagine God sitting in a counselor's office and they're discussing this whole issue of Israel's unfaithfulness, the rejection and abandonment, the refusal to be in a relationship, sitting in the counselor's office, and the counselor says to God, tell me how you feel. And God says, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like a man who found a baby girl lying in the gutter. 
she was sickly, she was suffering, and so I picked her up and I carried her home and I fed her and I clothed her and I tended to her. I finally adopted her as my own. I doted on the girl. She became the love of my life. But then she became a teenager and she chose to rebel. And she ran away from home and I, I heard, I began to hear stories of her living a debased, corrupt, and profane life. I also heard stories of when my name came up. When I was mentioned, she cursed me. That's how I felt. But God didn't stop there. God says, I'll, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel like a man who, found, who fell in love with a woman who, when I met her, was sickly and abused. And I took her into my home, and I cared for her, and I, and, I, and I added value to her, and I began to adore her. In fact, she became the apple of my eye. And for a time, life was good. But then she began to turn her attentions to my friends, to my enemies, to complete strangers. And she committed adultery a time and time and time again. And so you want to know how I feel? I feel betrayed. I feel anguish. I feel angry. Now let me just say, if you find your sensibilities violated by that, if somehow you go, I don't feel comfortable with someone describing God in that way. Giving those kind of emotions and feelings and attitude toward God, then I want to encourage you, if, that struggle, if you struggle with that, if that offends you, then I want to encourage you, take some time today and over the next few weeks, and read the Old Testament prophets. Because what you find in the Old Testament prophets is, is the retelling, the accounting of God's anger and anguish and pain over a people who completely and totally and repeatedly show nothing but indifference and infidelity to his love and affection. But if that's all you get from the prophets, you didn't get all the prophets had to say because you also get in the prophets a story, a retelling, a recounting of God's unrelenting love. A love that, though he was justified, could not give up on the people, could not give up on us, and so he continually, repeatedly, one way after another, continued to reach out to Israel. And in the same way, he continued to reach out to us. Yet, despite God's best efforts, time and time again, the same people, the Israelites, repeatedly chose rebellion, apostasy, and adultery over God. And folks, we need to understand that that pattern continued for hundreds of years, right up through the intertestamental period, right up to the, to the period that people refer as the 400 years of silence, until God's greatest and last effort to reach his people happened. And I'm talking about the birth of Jesus. And how God in the flesh died on a cross is what we ultimately understand that Jesus that saves, the Lord that saves, that Jesus names me, ultimately gave his life on a cross so that once again, you and I, humanity, could ultimately and finally enjoy the community, the relationship for which God had called us and created us for. Folks, the reality is that's the Christmas story. So the Christmas story is really a story of God's pursuing love for us. God becoming one of us in order to win our hearts. That's the Christmas story. 
Because as we might recognize, God could have, it was in His power and within His ability to force us to relate to Him. Some might even argue to force us to love Him. But if He had done that, if He had forced relationship upon us, folks, that relationship would have been meaningless. Because you know and I know, folks, that only a relationship entered into freely truly has any meaning. And so rather than forcing us to relate to Him, God took a completely different tack. Instead, God came as the baby Jesus. He came one and helped us. He became, came as one of us. That's part of what Luke was helping us understand, that Jesus, as Paul writes in Galatians, Jesus became and lived under the law to, to fulfill the law so that He reached those of us and complete and fulfill the law. The reality is Jesus came, and Luke is telling us, Jesus did what He did in order for God to have a last great hope, for us rather to have a last great hope of restoring our relationship with Him. And that's what Simeon saw that day. That's what he recognized before anyone else recognized on that, that last day of Christmas, that he was seeing the Savior of the world. He was seeing the hope of Christmas. And because he did, and he recognized that, he rejoiced. In fact, here's what he said. He said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people. It's all-inclusive. A light for, of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, folks, let me say this in light of that. Until you and I see Christmas that way, until we see it like Simeon did, here's what we need to understand. Christmas will just be another holiday. Christmas will simply be another excuse that we have to get together with family and friends and give and receive presents. It will simply be another excuse for a day off, another time to celebrate Santa Claus and reindeer and snowmen. Folks, we will never appreciate what Simeon saw. We will never appreciate the true meaning of Christmas until, like Simeon, we see that Jesus is the hope of Christmas, not a hope, the hope, that He is the focal point of God's redemptive history and story of God pursuing us in love in order to have a relationship with us. That's what Simeon saw. That's what Christmas is about. But that's not the only thing Simeon understood. And he makes that clear. I want you to see the next thing that takes place because he, after doing that, after saying what he did to God, he turned to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he gave her the so what of Christmas. And let me read it to you. Here's what Luke writes. He says, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Well, I would think so. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many's hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, let's look at a couple things there that Simeon said to Mary. And the first one is the obvious one, and that is he says a sword will pierce your own soul. We know what that was, right? That was Mary experiencing what no mother or father should experience, and that is watching the death of their own child. But the question that I want to spend a little bit of time with is what in the world was he talking about when he said Jesus' birth would be something that would cause the rising and falling of many and would be something spoken against? And when I suggest to you what, that, what he was getting at, the Spirit was saying through Simeon was this, that Jesus' birth was the defining and dividing moment in human history. 
Folks, the reality is it's often been said by many. In fact, Jesus' life and ministry has been called many, many things by many, many people. But the one thing that can never be said about Jesus' life and teaching is this, that it's neutral. To quote C.S. Lewis, Jesus intentionally never left that option open. Now, I've shared this with you before. Some of you have been here for a while, but I want you to hear C.S. Lewis' words himself because, as I said, I know some of you have heard it before, but it's so fitting. I want to read it to you. Here's what Lewis writes. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis writes, that is one thing we must not say. For a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Hear that. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, you can fall, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And folks, that's what Christmas really is all about. That's what the Christmas story is about. God coming to earth in human flesh, with a choice. And the choice is whether you and I would accept or reject that God himself wants a relationship with us. And so God himself has been pursuing us through the entirety of human history. And from creation to the time of the prophets to the intertestinal period, we see this relentless love of God on full display. And it was building and building and building until this ultimate moment and expression of his love and his care and concern when he took on the form of a human being and became one of us in order to live and then die to pay for our sins to provide the one and only way back into relationship with God. That's the Christmas story. Let me give it to you this way. Maybe this will help you understand it. Frederick Beekner, a great teacher and theologian of this past century, said it like this, describing what Jesus did, what God did through Jesus. He said, it's like the father said to a sick child, I'd do anything to make you well. And he says, it's like God said that and then acted on it. And so what we understand today is that the Christmas story is about God willing and doing whatever it took to make you and I relationally well. To bring you and I back into relationship with him. And Simeon understood that. He recognized that before anyone else did. And because he did, he celebrated the one true hope, the one true meaning and message of Christmas, Jesus himself. And quite honestly, as I close today, my prayer for you and I as we journey this year toward Christmas is that you and I will respond in the exact same way. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to say for myself, and I hope for many here today, thank you for Simeon and his example. Thank you for the fact that he helps us see Christmas in its true colors, 
in its full significance. It helps us see Christmas in a much deeper way, which I suspect, Father, is why you made sure that Luke preserved this last day of Christmas, or at least the last day of the Christmas story, in your word, in his gospel. Because, Father, I know you well enough after all these years walking together that I know you didn't want us to get so caught up in mangers and shepherds and wise men that we miss the true substance of what Jesus' birth means, and that is he is the hope of the world, the hope of our salvation. So, Father, thank you for keeping Simeon alive long enough to see your promise fulfilled. And thank you for what Simeon said to remind us of the grand story and the sweep of salvation history, redemptive history. And thank you for preserving this last often forgotten, last seen, last day in the Christmas story. I pray that as we journey toward Christmas this year, that we will not forget what Simeon teaches us and tells us about Jesus being our true hope of salvation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jerry. So as we start this Advent journey together, as we travel to Jesus' birth, um, and over these next couple of weeks together, as we do that, we start today with hope. And I want to... Uh, share a verse from a hymn. If you grew up in church, you'll be familiar with this hymn, but it talks about our hope, and it says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the world or fame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. What are you basing your hope on today. As you listen to this message this morning, I hope that, um, I hope, not wishful thinking, my prayer is that you would see Jesus and that you would see that he is the hope of the world. And if you want to talk to someone about that decision, if you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to know about that hope, I encourage you to check the box on the back of your card today uh, where it says my decision today that you uh, maybe are one of those that you committed your life to Jesus today or recommitting or grow, want to grow in your faith or explore your faith. You can do that online as well this morning. There's going to be a, a link there that you can uh, click on and do that today. But would you consider that as you've heard us this morning talk about the hope of Christmas, of who Jesus is and the hope we have in him and then would you maybe perhaps make a commitment to be here over these next several weeks as we continue hearing about the hope we have in Jesus and the things that he brings, the joy that he brings, the love that he gives, and then be with us on Christmas Eve. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to seeing you and worshiping with you again next week. Thank you.